everyone, welcome to Ideology, a podcast where we seek to explore the ideas and belief systems that give rise to the contours of modern society. Our prayer is that you would be equipped to be a faithful follower of Jesus amid the complexity of our culture. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy this episode. Hi, friends. Mick Murray here, and welcome to the Ideology Podcast. And I have a, a treat for you guys today. Drew is actually traveling, took his daughter up to Dallas, I believe, for a little uh, father-daughter getaway. Uh, so instead of me sitting in a room by myself and talking for 30 minutes and droning on, uh, I meet with a, a guys group for some measure of accountability weekly. And so I roped these guys in with me today to approach some topics a bit more Socratically, actually going back to some of our first episodes, actually the first two episodes looking at uh, the nature of secularism and Christianity as these two main belief systems in our culture today, and then what are some of the characteristics, something of a, a year and a half in, what are some thoughts that have crystallized uh, around the characteristics of these belief systems and how most of us, myself included, live very syncretistically, some blended form of these various beliefs. And so with me today, I have Colton Nixon, Daniel Notman, Colton, a lawyer here in town, and Daniel Notman, who works in the president's office at Baylor and is my walking English lexicon, uh, has an expansive vocabulary and uh, is constantly broadening my own repertoire of uh, the English language. So delight to have you guys here today. And uh, let's just dive right in. So, so just to go all the way back to the beginning, the reason that Drew and I started this podcast is not because we're experts in these various fields. We started it because in our pastoral responsibilities, we found that we were having a lot of the same conversations over and over again, especially starting around the summer of 2020 with a lot of the social upheaval that was going on in the midst of COVID. And we found that the, the root of a lot of our conversations had to do with these ideas that were influencing us underneath the surface, that the more we had dialogue, the more we listened, we found that a lot of our peers were being influenced by what we found to be more secular ideas, not necessarily Christian or Judeo-Christian ideas within that tradition. And so we decided to try to put some content together, put it out to the body of Christ as a as a point of dialogue and reflection. And then this has just developed over the years, over the past couple of years, as we've taught on this more and done this podcast and reflected on these things. And so going all the way back to these, there's the idea that we have two main belief systems in our culture, secularism and Christianity. And we call them belief systems, even though secularism is, isn't necessarily a belief system in the traditional sense, like Islam or Hinduism or Christianity. It is a belief system in that I would argue it requires the same amount of faith. Uh, when you go past just the empirical scientific scientific method and and look at what has essentially become scientism, science attempting to ask the why questions behind the what that it's evaluating, and the creedal elements that have cropped up in some of the proponents of more secular ideals, even yard signs that have that have cropped up in the past couple of years. And so the idea that we don't live in a belief neutrality, that we are being influenced one way or the other, we are being formed, we are being shaped, that we don't just deconstruct our faith. Actually, we convert to different ideas. We come to doubt something sufficiently enough because something else seems more plausible. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times this doesn't happen actively. This happens passively. And when we are are not being conscious of the fact that we are 
quote-unquote, deconstructing or analyzing or critiquing our commonly held beliefs. When we aren't aware of that, often it's because somebody else is, and there is a proactivity in our culture to change out the operating system, if you will, in our in our belief systems. Okay, so with that as a prologue, what, what I want to do with you guys, Colton, Daniel, is just kind of break down, if you can almost picture a, a chart in your minds uh, as a listener, the, the various different characteristics of secularism and Christianity for a sort of compare and contrast, then we're going to get to some of the implications at the end. So starting with secularism, and I really appreciate the way I've heard it broken down before along the lines of origin, identity, meaning, morality, and destiny. And, and really, those are just more accessible terms to talk about some of the main philosophical threads throughout time of ontology and epistemology, anthropology, ethics, eschatology, and, and all these other ologies. So if we look at secularism and look at it along those lines, what would you guys say are the origin stories of the secular narratives in our cultures, the stories that are coming at us in the classroom or through media. And of course, this is going to be an overgeneralization. This is going to be unfair because there are a multitude of beliefs out there, but there are certainly some dominant threads. So what would you guys say are the origin narratives, the ontological narratives that are coming at us in secular culture? To use Mick's favorite phrase, that we are the product of time, chance, and chemistry, uh, is something that even I was surprised to see as a as a Baylor employee, I've seen this taught in classrooms. That's not to say that that's off limits for instruction as a as a theory and an idea, but it seems like the origin of mankind has been decided in the secular world as the result of a great you know a great collision, and we just happen to spew out some human beings, and and here we are. Yeah, yeah, that's great. I, I love that you picked up on that formula time and chance and chemistry that essentially you know we're just a cosmic accident there's no intentionality behind us being here within the, the secular story and then that has been developed over the centuries the big bang theory and darwinian evolution and you can kind of reverse engineer back to about the you know middle of the 1600s actually really all the way back to the greeks but in earnest in the 1600s, 1700s. And so that, that word ontology, and uh, Colton, I'm loving the uh, facial expressions you've been making since we started this. Uh, <laughs> yeah, that word ontology, essentially, like what is real, the study of what is actually substantive and real. So what would be, you know, for somebody who believes in time and chance and chemistry is, is essentially how we came about, that there's, you know, there's, that we are the byproducts of just these natural processes. So when it comes to ontology, how would you describe what somebody's definition of reality would be? What is actually real? What's behind the curtain, so to speak? There is nothing beyond this, what we see in this world. Right. Another way of saying that maybe is that there's there's no such thing as the metaphysical that's outside of the physical realm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Now, you could be certainly agnostic in that regard, but I think the predominant viewpoint is one that's exclusively materialistic, naturalistic, in, sure. in that all that there is out there is what we can empirically verify and, and mm -hmm. you know, with our five senses. Growing up, that's something that I remember being taught in science class, even as, a, as an elementary school student, was that the scientific method is the robust way of testing and understanding whether or not something is true. And there are obviously things outside the realm of science, things like the miraculous or the supernatural or or the divine. And there's an, there's an unspoken idea that because those things cannot be 
tested empirically, that they are outside the realm of knowledge and are not to be regarded with the same level of authority as, say, a, an experiment on gravity or on something material. And, you know, you, you keep talking about knowledge, and that's because knowledge flows downstream from ontology. Like, what we understand about reality informs how we believe that we come to know something. And, and I, you know, this is very pedestrian. If you're a philosopher out there and you've studied classical philosophy and epistemology and ontology, I'm not using the terminology that you would find in a, in a textbook. This is more, uh, again, just more pedestrian street level philosophy here in, in terms of how it informs our faith. But if ontologically, if we come from a viewpoint that all that is real is that which can be seen and tasted mm-hmm. and smelled and felt. and yeah felt uh, heard with the ear then what does that mean for our knowledge like how does somebody come to know something as truth maybe lowercase t truth as real within that within that worldview yeah well as daniel was saying like they experience it i mean it is their reality doesn't go past what they've experienced and what they've potentially read about or seen through different avenues of what they see as truth. Right. So experience, and then maybe as a second level, because I mean, none of us on the planet today were alive in 1863, and yet there's a strong belief that that year actually existed. Why is that? Just because of enough people believe it, perhaps? Yeah, not just believe it, but enough people documented it, right? There's enough of a testimony. There's enough of a, an eyewitness account from enough credible sources that we don't typically give it a second thought that that year actually existed. Now, it may not have. Like, none of us actually know for sure, for sure, for sure, you know, because none of us were there to experience it. But we believe pretty much beyond a shadow of a doubt that it did exist because not because we experienced, but because a lot of other people experienced it and documented their experiences. And it was this global phenomenon that the year 1863 existed. And so we just chalk that up as truth, you know, lowercase t. Okay, so we have experience and testimonial. We'll come back to that, but we're just going to keep working our way down kind of the secular viewpoint. Because again, some of this is linear, I think. You know, it starts with ontology, origins, you know, origin stories, and the Big Bang. And I know there's a lot out there in theoretical physics around, you know, the multiverse and how what was before the Big Bang. And and there's a lot of assumption, a lot of pontification about that. But let's just start with you know, the Big Bang and then these, given enough time and enough, uh, the right chemical soup, if you will, and obviously massively oversimplifying. But here we are today through these natural processes, the natural selection. And so what does that mean for identity? What does it mean to be human in that regard, our, our anthropology? What is what is it to be human within the secular narrative if we're just the product of time, chance, and chemistry and our knowledge comes about through what we, what we experience? What does that mean for the human condition? I would think if we truly are believing that the world around us and our life is all that there is, then we should live in such a way that enjoys this life as much as possible and so that doesn't necessarily necessitate like thinking about what will i receive like in heaven or even worrying about going to hell and so i just do what feels right in the moment and so it's not something that i necessarily need to think of others outside of whether or not that makes me feel better it's great. You actually jumped one step ahead to meaning or telos, te- teleology, and actually spoken like a true millennial, and we'll get back to that in just a moment, uh, <laughs> jumping straight to humanism. You two millennials here. Yeah, I love it. So, but, but uh, again, 
just looking at the human as as an entity, what is what is a human? Just a bag of bones. Bag of bones, bag of meat. We're wet. We're just wet meat, you know. <laughs> it's a sack sack of meat, not to be overly crude or crass, but yeah, that's right. We're we're just anatomy. There, we're just another branch on the tree of life. Beyond the body, you know, I don't know that there would be much of a belief in the soul, maybe in, in as much as it maybe it represents our personality. Somebody would talk about the soul within the secular narrative. Certainly not a spirit in the sense that something about us transcends us and outlives this corpus, this body that we inhabit right now. So when we die, uh, we'll get to that in a moment with eschatology, but we just cease to exist because all we were was, you know, this random collection of molecules and chemistry. And, you know, I've even read some um, people thinking about the nature of love and that ultimately it's just a chemical process in the brain. It's no different from mm. the, the feeling of being hungry and, and so on and so forth. There's nothing metaphysical. There's no other epistemology outside, again, of this kind of empirical scientific approach to life. Okay, so if that's identity, we'll go where you were going, Colton, talking about then meaning. What What is it? What's the meaning of life, the telos, the purpose of our being here within the secular narrative? And again, and just another disclaimer, I know we're oversimplifying this, so this is offending you because of how simplistic this is. Just trying to get to the bare bones of, of some of these underlying core assumptions about life today, because where we'll end is acknowledging that all of us live some blended version of this ideology and Judeo-Christianity, at least in the West, plus a myriad of other belief systems depending upon our family of origin and subcultures and so on and so forth. So we're oversimplifying for the, for the sake of being clear. Okay, but when it comes to meaning, what's the purpose of life? It feels like if you're not accountable to anyone, you make life what you want it to be about. So if your purpose to life is to make all the money that you can, then you can do that. And if your purpose to life is to gratify every desire that you feel, then, I mean, it's your life. I, I think especially of all the, in recent years with the advent of the internet and all these new communities that can easily connect together, that there have been all sorts of niche hobbies that have shown up. I mean, I think of Reddit, for example, where you just have tens of thousands of people who spend their days in very specific, narrow areas. But why not? That's the, the, the my, my generation, and I think our society as a whole would say, do what makes you happy, do what you choose to do. Uh, so long as it doesn't harm somebody else or interfere with, uh, with me, then... I mean, like Colton said, eat, drink, and be merry. Why not? Yeah, and I, I would say also just kind of building off of Daniel's thought, I feel like having traveled some overseas and just experienced other cultures, looking around from a business perspective, I see a whole lot of businesses that are exactly the same. In America, I feel like we are in the land of niches. We have really niched down, and there's so many different ways that people express the way that they find meaning in life or find purpose or find enjoyment and they focus in on those things find a band or a crew of people that are willing to go along with them in that and then they just focus on that and that's their sole purpose and meaning in life yeah and again i love it i think it's fun having two millennials in the room because uh, both of those responses i think are in lockstep with the broader younger culture in america which we'll circle back to but daniel something you said reminded me of a quote from John Tyson, who I believe was quoting somebody else. And he said, if you remove the creator, you remove the notion of design. If you remove design, you remove the notion of purpose. If you remove purpose, you remove the need for accountability, which is what you were talking about. If you remove the need 
for accountability, you eliminate the fear of consequence. God is out of the question, and the fear of God is the beginning of wisdom, kind of connecting that with the idea of consequence or judgment or accountability. Then essentially you have total confusion, uh, total moral confusion. (laughs) So we're confused. Yeah. (laughs) Maybe broadly as a culture today, yes. Yeah, I think, you know, if, if you follow this line of thinking and we are the product of time, chance, and chemistry, and we come to know by what we experience and to be human is to be just a you know a sack of meat and then the purpose of life essentially there is no ultimate purpose of life is what you guys are saying so in the absence of that and, and what's interesting is you know depending upon the generation depending upon where we are in the world i think people would answer that differently like if we were in an eastern context the purpose of life might be to kind of further the clan further the tribal identity and to carry on the legacy or or if we were in, you know, Western Europe in the middle of the 1800s and kind of at the height of, of nihilism and, you know, there is no ultimate purpose of life. It's bleak and we have come to grips with our own mortality and the meaninglessness of existence. And so it ends in depression and possibly suicide. And, you know, so a lot of different ways that you can answer that question. And I think both of you answering along the lines of kind of this self-actualization, self-fulfillment, maybe a kind of a quasi-hedonism, you know, Epicureanism, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. This self-fulfillment and self-preservation, I think, is the the mantra of our age, again, broadly speaking. Okay, so kind of the next logical step down this progression would be ethics or morality. And so, again, within the this line of thinking, what would you think would be the definition or the starting point or a way of conceiving of morality? It feels like there are different criteria there if we're thinking about individual morality as opposed to societal morality. So if you're what is moral to an individual would be secularly to release your inhibitions and to uh, to let the authentic self come out, uh, which might be you just wear that pair of jeans that you were uh, that you were iffy about putting on and just so you can feel confident or that can mean dressing up like somebody of the other gender because you feel like that's who you actually are because the greatest sin would be to not be true to yourself and then on a societal level I would think that morality involves giving people the opportunity to do that expanding access uh, as much as we can supporting them and God forbid not quelching, what they what they most desire to do or most uh, have decided is is appropriate for them. It's a, it's as if we can judge for ourselves what our what our end goals, what our raison d'etre are. That's right. So what you just described is Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and what he calls uh, expressive individualism, borrowing on the work of Charles Taylor and Philip Reif. And this idea that ultimately morality is subjective. If there's no objective truth beyond the self or beyond, you know, the, the cosmos as we understand it. Uh, and I know others, others like Sam Harris, you know, in his book, The Moral Landscape, have tried to objectify morality based on the shared human experience that we have. But ultimately, I think it's really, it's a slippery slope and it's difficult to pin down, hence the title of his book, The Moral Landscape, that there's a landscape to morality and it it becomes, like you said, layered when you talk about individual morality compared to kind of corporate ethics. And if being true to myself impinges upon somebody else's pursuit of their own expression of joy and goodness and happiness, then who is there to arbitrate between those differences of opinion? How do we define what's good ultimately in the end? And I, I was just reading in, in Truman's book, Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, he talks about Peter Singer at 
Princeton. He's an ethicist at Princeton. And he's a big proponent of post-birth abortion, where uh, up to you know three to five years old, essentially, if a child is born who has you know significant disabilities, let's say, and is impeding upon the parent's happiness and pursuit of happiness, and that child is not yet self-conscious, that then there is no there's no ultimate morality to suggest that to end that child's life, if it if it produces you know, a net benefit for the community, then that's just, that's, that's ethical. And, you know, of course, as a Christian, ho- hopefully we would recoil at that notion because of the, the Imago Dei, what we'll come back to in a moment, the intrinsic value of every human. But, but you know, how, how do you arbitrate? How, how could you tell Peter Singer he's patently wrong? But the point is that this expressive individualism, this subjective morality, I think, is what we see in the world today, that, you know, it, it shifts. The, the landscape has shifted dramatically on sexuality, uh, which is a whole other set of topics that we've covered at least a, a little bit in brief in the past. Uh, over the past 60 years, massive change in the social consciousness when it comes to what is right, what is good when it comes to our sexuality. I think that would be one kind of tip of the spear example in culture today. So downstream from that, we have destiny, kind of what's the ultimate destiny of mankind. And this is a simple one, you know, for a secular person, the destiny of each human is what? Death. Death and dismemberment, yeah. right? Yeah, it's just decay. Uh, we are we are worm food from dust to dust and nothing that transcends this life that projects on into eternity or beyond the here and now. Okay, so if that, again, is an oversimplified version of the secular narrative from origin to identity to meaning to morality to destiny, uh, we won't take as long on the Judeo-Christian analog, but uh, starting with origin, what do we have in the Christian story? Genesis and God creating the world and everything in it. Right. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He spoke everything into existence, formed and fashioned Adam and Eve out of the dust and out of the the flesh of Adam himself. And you have this Genesis story of God's the intention of God's will and by his agency, ex nihilo, creating everything out of nothing. Uh, what's the implication for our epistemology, for how we come to know things as followers of Jesus? Well, I would say at least one way is through tradition of what the church has done in the past and how it informs our future behavior, our present behavior, as well as just our community groups. So I think that the Lord really presses into being a part of a community and the Christian faith, and I think that that really informs the way that we live out our lives. That's great. And so maybe lumping that in with testimony, you know, in a sense of like those who've gone before us their experiences, their observations. But what else? So we have certainly observations still. We we can come to know something as true, as real through our observation. I think you are real entities sitting here in front of me. You're not a figment of my imagination uh, because I'm experiencing you. Uh, and I believe that the year 1863 existed because of the testimonies have gone before us. But what else for the Christian in terms of our perception of reality? I think of Hebrews chapter 1 where it says that in the past God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, but in these last days he's spoken to us by his son, that there's a way for us to know things outside of purely the naturalistic method that divine revelation or revelation of God through other means, like Colton said, through fellow believers or through the word is legitimate. Right. So that's the big, that's the key word right there, revelation, right? This, this idea that God reveals himself 
through his own speech, through Jesus, through nature, through dreams, through whatever, all these different ways that we believe that God can reveal himself. But that's a huge departure from the secular understanding of reality or knowledge is that we believe in the metaphysical. We believe in the supernatural, super being outside of the natural realm. We believe that we can only come to know God ultimately except by his self-revelation. Like he has to reveal himself to us. We don't possess the rationale, the power of perception enough to know God through our own analysis. Like God has to initiate with us and reveal himself. And that's a huge third part of epistemology that would be a a massive differentiator in terms of how we come to engage the reality around us is this idea of revelation that stands apart from just empiricism. So from that, you have uh, identity or anthropology. What does it mean to be human? Are we just sacks of meat? No, we're uniquely created. <laughs> Thank you for that piercing analysis. Yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely not. Um, I think that it means that we're uniquely created by the Lord. Like He knows us individually. He doesn't just He hasn't just like created us and left us to be. He's formed us in our mother's womb. Like He has loved us from the beginning. He. Um, yeah, no, that's good. Yeah, you're on the right track. I mean, that's we're an act of intentionality, an act of the will. And embedded in that is this idea of the image of God, like God made us in his image, for, uh, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So what else? What else? What makes up the human person then? I don't know if this is what you're asking, but like our, we not only have our own physical body, but we also have our spirit that the Lord has like put within us. Absolutely, yeah. And that's right in line with this idea of the metaphysical, again, that God reveals, we believe in a God who is outside of our reality, who reveals himself supernaturally, and that, and that we are made up of something uh, that is not substance, that is, it can't be weighed. They've actually done experiments where they have weighed people at the time of death to see if their weight diminished by even a fraction to see if the spirit makes up some tangible part of the wow. body. And, of course, they haven't detected any uh, noticeable change uh, in their weight. But we still believe in this immaterial part of, a, a part of us that transcends us. And then, and then the ultimate Christian belief, of course, is that there is the resurrection of the body uh, at the end of time, Jesus being the first fruits of that. But, okay, so we have that we are body, soul, and spirit uh, within the Christian tradition. One thing we didn't talk about that, that connects to both anthropology and uh, morality is, you know, within the secular worldview, are humans fundamentally evil or fundamentally good? They're fundamentally good. Yeah, in the sense that um, <laughs> there's not a, a notion of sin, original sin. And so there's certainly brokenness to the world. And that's, you know, there are a lot of theories out there that grapple with the brokenness, the fallenness of mankind, or at least the, you know, the ills, the social ills that we see, but rarely does it place the onus on the individual, what we right. would, con- what we would consider original sin. And so within the secular notion, we're, we're fundamentally good. That's why there's a bias towards youth in our culture, because the longer you live, the more corrupted you are by the systems. And uh, there's a whole interesting analysis of that that's been done by by many uh, folks that Carl Truman touches on in his book. Uh, but within the Christian understanding, humans are what? Fundamentally evil. 
for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Right, or flawed, flawed broken. Yes. There's a there's a sinfulness. There's a bent uh, away from submission to God's authority that requires. Now we're still made in the image of God. Somebody who's not a follower of Jesus still made in the image of God. Still capable of wonderful, beautiful things. But there is a corruption. There's a a bentness uh, away from God's authority. Okay, so when it comes to meaning, tell us the the purpose of life for the Christian. I would say it's to glorify God and to enjoy him. It's great. Yeah. What else, Colton? Yeah. I, I mean, I just go back to the two greatest commandments that Jesus talked about. Love the Lord God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and love your neighbor as yourself. And so there's very much a focus not on yourself, but rather the Lord and others around you. And you are behind those things. It's great. Yeah, absolutely. And there's so much that could be said here. Um, but I think it starts with that notion of glory and and you know, Habakkuk 2.14, the glory of God will cover the earth as the waters cover the seas. And the commissioning of Adam and Eve in the garden, I think, is tied to that, that idea. And this idea of fellowship, of relationship, but we're relational beings, and that's a big part of why we're on this earth, the fellowship with God, one another, and with even the creation, the physical creation God's placed us in and towards the, you know, the end of a flourishing human society, that the nature of God, the, the creativity and the care of God is seen in the earth. Yes, all the above. Point being, there is an objective purpose. There's an objective meaning to the, to the human life. There's an intrinsic value uh, made in the image of God. And then there's purpose that is outside the self that doesn't have to be subjectified and defined by each individual person. What a load to bear, by the way, you know, in a in the absence of a God, to have to define my identity and my purpose you know, for existence, my reason, reason for existence is a tremendous weight to bear. Yeah, and I would also add on to that, like we wonder why there's so many like mental problems that have started arising in recent decades, or at least being identified as arising, and I think it's exactly that. Like we are putting on ourselves this morality issue, and like the weight of having to bear that is just something we weren't meant to bear. Absolutely, 100%. Yeah, and so morality within the Christian uh, worldview? I think it goes back to that measure that there is accountability and that accountability is laid out through Scripture and is uh, revealed for us through the Holy Spirit. And so we have an objective. You you have the Bible as an authoritative code of conduct that can command believers in what they believe in and how they live. Right. And and maybe to take that one step further, Jesus himself is this kind of lived embodiment of morality and, and is um, maybe one way of understanding hermeneutics, the science of biblical interpretation uh, that Jesus himself interprets. Because the Bible, it, you know, the Bible as a code of ethics, it, there's still a lot of need for interpretation, mm-hmm. right? Because the, the time and space that God spoke into with, with Israel's journey, for example, there are a lot of you know laws that literally can't apply to us today, and that's a whole separate set of conversations. But the point being that there is this objective sense of morality, that God in the garden said, uh, you know, this is good, pronounce, made pronouncements of good, put boundaries around humankind for what we can and can't do. And there's a, an authority, uh, the nature of authority is connected to that and, and an objective morality, to somebody to whom we will give an account, something that's inescapable in the scriptures. And then the destiny of mankind. That we'd be one with God again, that we would be uh, u- united with him for all of eternity, through, which is available to us through Jesus, but as the decision of every individual. Right. And implicit in that is this idea that there's we transcend death, that there's something mm-hmm. about us that is eternal, is immortal in that sense, whether heaven or hell, these kind of classical Christian doctrines that 
would be too cumbersome for us to unpack today, but the point being that we're eternal. Okay, so don't mean to beat a dead horse. I know we've talked about these themes a lot, but I think where I want to reflect here to end is the fact that, and I, I came across, uh, I've come across this several times. We've talked a little bit about moralistic therapeutic deism as an attempt to put a label on maybe cultural Christianity. And when I read a recent explanation of MTD, moralistic therapeutic deism, I found that it was really a blend of these two columns, if you will, secular belief, Judeo-Christian belief. And I think really, really summarizes how a lot of us default in the West in terms of our day-to-day lived experience and our beliefs. And let me just read these kind of five or six tenets of moralistic therapeutic deism. So these tenets, uh, God created, ordered, and watches over creation. Uh, But God is ultimately not needed or involved until someone's in crisis. And the purpose of life is to be happy, to feel good uh, about oneself. And morality is to be good, nice, and fair to others, as taught by all world religions at the end of the day. And when it comes to destiny, you know, good people go to heaven when they die. And there's really not a ton of thought, deep critical thought given to the notion of what happens after death. But but generally speaking, God created everything and is, you know, is available in, in a time of crisis, otherwise is relatively uninvolved in our lives. We need to be good, fair, and nice to others. And essentially, that's how we, we live our lives with a lot of addendums and attachments to that, but at the core. And I, I think that's an interesting blend, of course, pulling on some origin stories from the Christian narrative, because as secular and as atheistic as our culture is trending, there's still, I don't know what the recent Gallup poll was, but among Americans who were asked if they believed in a God, it was actually still a relatively high percentage. There's still a a spiritual nature, uh, even if we are very naturalistic and materialistic in our day-to-day, there's still this, this tacit belief maybe in something outside the self that is unknowable. We can't ever know what it is actually, but but surely there's something beyond us. I feel like I spend most of my days, most days thinking about this. My, uh, as, as part of my work professionally, I help with communication for university leadership and drafting talking points and just helping uh, some of the leadership think through what they share with campus or with other groups. And it is so easy for me to slowly drift towards this moralistic therapeutic deism, especially in a, in a role where as leaders, you do not want to invite controversy. And so you don't want to rock the boat with what you say. It is very easy to water a message down to the stuff that nobody is going to disagree with. And I felt so convicted by the Lord a few months ago for sharing the, you know, the, the who can disagree with making an impact in the world around you or showing kindness to somebody in the name of trying to extend my reach or my influence because our generation just worships influence or the influence as if it's a you know as if it's how you've made it oh gosh yes i i I agree with all of this and i fear that for many christians people view embracing this moralistic therapeutic deism is the only way that the church is going to have a voice when in fact the opposite is what is true yeah that's that's great daniel thanks for kind of tying that in again to your to your day-to-day and just some practical tangible experience in your life because I think that's where the rubber meets the road and I think where I've been convicted by this and at the at the bottom of these columns and this goes back to I think the second episode we did what are the tenets of these various viewpoints or these you know belief systems within the the secular line of thought what this leads to is individualism 
in, a, in an acute form in the West where I'm an atomized entity, really disconnected from family, disconnected from broader society. And again, I'm, I'm in pursuit of my own self-actualization and self-preservation and so on and so forth. And we have this expressive individualism in the West that's a product of the last 400 years of philosophical development. But at the core, I'm an individual. I have a materialistic or a naturalistic understanding of reality. So there is no supernatural. Uh, there's nothing you know outside of what I can verify empirically. And then humanism, this kind of idea that if there's going to be change in the earth, it has to come through human agency. Like I, mm-hmm. I can't wait for some supernatural you know power to step in and make things right. Mm-hmm. If it's going to change, we have to change it. And these are by- byproducts of this line of thinking. And when I stop and realize I have been so influenced by that line of thinking in terms of how I understand myself as an individual, in terms of how hard it is to believe in the supernatural in a day-to-day basis, you know, to believe for God to break in supernaturally, you know, whether it's through healing or some other, you know, miraculous intervention. And then humanism, this idea of based on my efforts, my ability to influence the world around me is incumbent upon my abilities, my intellect, my resources, my networks, Mm -hmm. and so on. Whereas at the bottom of the Christian column, some of the characteristics would be in instead of individualism it's this radical communalism not not communism but communalism and we see this as I was reading through acts again and I'm just struck at the nature of the community and how they embraced one another sold their possessions gave to one another it's radical this radical voluntary communalism and that my decisions impact other people as I work with people who are making decisions folks in their 20s, 30s, often the criterion is is along the lines of, you know, income or desired location. Rarely do I hear somebody thinking through, who do I want to do life with? And that being the basis for a sense of calling. Mm-hmm. And yet, uh, I think we see that in the book of in the book of Acts and the in the scriptures more broadly, um, this idea of communalism and so much could be talked about there. And instead of materialism or naturalism, it's again the supernatural that we walk in the expectation and the knowledge of the supernatural. And instead of humanism, it's this deep dependence on the spirit that I am day by day, moment by moment, in touch with, conscious of present to the work of the Spirit in me to bring about any change in me personally and then through me to the world around me. And I agree with you, Daniel. I think the call of the church in this hour is to evaluate in what ways have I become this kind of syncretistic blend that has kind of been watered down to moralistic therapeutic deism and instead be formed into the image of Jesus to embody the characteristics of the scriptures that are going to stand in stark contrast and even starker contrast as our culture continues to shift away from this Judeo-Christian foundation, which I think could be a tremendously positive thing, a net positive thing in the end, though painful for many you know, at the time being, I think the starker the contrast, the more that the person of Jesus and the ways of the kingdom stand out as a light in the world. Uh, but that's going to require, that's gonna be, there's going to be a cost to believers in the days to come to embody, to live out, to manifest the ways of Jesus, uh, not just in our church spaces, but in the workplace and on social media and within our extended families and at the grocery store, just in the, the lived places that we are to live out the supernatural, to live out a deep dependence on the spirit or this this radical communalism. And we could talk about many other characteristics of the Christian faith, the Beatitudes, the fruit of the spirit. How do we live that out in business in this kind of cutthroat 
marketplace that we live in and what does it look to be look like to be meek as a business owner who still has responsibility to shareholders and to employees and how do we wrestle that through and i think that's going to be the call of the church in the west in the coming years and decades as our culture is increasingly uh, secularized uh, and, and certainly as moralistic therapeutic deism is no longer an option you know for a follower of jesus an earnest follower of jesus in today's kind of day and hour. I feel like as believers, we're followers of Jesus. And what did Jesus do in these in the Gospels? And what do we know about him and how that he acted in this world while he was here? Well, what he did was not just flowing down the river um, as it, like with all the other fish. He was definitely turned against the tide and swimming upstream and going in a totally different direction that was not something that was cheered on by the religious leaders or political leaders at the time. Uh, rather, it was actually quite the opposite. And so why would we think that we're necessarily any different? Just because we've grown up in this cultural society, I grew up here in Waco in the like center of the Bible Belt, it feels like, and how do we, while still like congratulating that people are good morally, how do we make sure that people understand that we're not just doing this because it's good to do and it makes us feel better, but rather because we are followers of Jesus, that that is what informs our decisions and how we react and think of others above ourselves and love God with all our hearts, minds, and souls. That's a great reflection to end, Colton, that we're not just believers. You know, James, the brother of Jesus, half-brother of Jesus said, even the demons believe and they shudder. Demons are believers. They believe Jesus is who he says he is, but they don't follow him. They're not seeking to be conformed to his image. They don't love him. It's not enough to simply give, you know, some kind of cognitive nod to the person of Jesus, but we're called to be conformed to him, to be formed into his image. What we think of as discipleship, we are students of Jesus. And so, yeah, that'd be a great place to end. Just may we as followers of Jesus in this hour, may we be formed into the image of Jesus. Hopefully this content today was a good reflection, again, hearkening back to the first couple of episodes. And just as we've continued to mull, on, mull over these topics I'm more and more convinced and convicted personally of the call to align with Jesus in this hour, in any hour, but certainly as uh, fewer and fewer institutions in the world around us are supporting the ethic of Jesus, may we embody it in a lived way, in a lived experience in our own lives, in our homes, in our communities as we move forward. Thanks for tuning in, and we'll catch you next week on Ideology. Ideology.